as you have probably noticed, if you have the outline, we're actually discussing work today and sometimes I betray my blue collar roots and just like to muck in, get it started, get it finished and I got in trouble from mum once preaching at her church when I forgot to pray and it's always good to seek God's face so I'd appreciate if you pray along with me before we look at God's word this morning. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, I yield myself to thee and to thy spirit. I pray for every single person. I pray that the word of God would speak in their hearts. May we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit even this morning. Those here that are thy people, we acknowledge our need. We need to be taught over and over again. We know that the ancient people of Israel always seem to forget. Father, please do a work in our hearts and minds even this morning. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are we seeking at work in 2024? Now, I've been at my place of employee for quite some time and I hope that I'm... Well, I, I don't seek to alienate anyone that perhaps isn't working. I know that there's a few younger people here and perhaps others who aren't currently employed in official work or paid work. But hopefully there are some principles here this morning that you might be able to apply to your situation. So can I request that if that doesn't fit you squarely, then uh, don't shut the word of God off or the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that there are some principles that you'll be able to apply from the word of God in 2024 because the word, this is a living good a book and God is a whole lot bigger than what I am and I'm sure that he can speak to your heart regardless of your situation. I can speak regarding my situation. You might be in a completely different one but let's not sell God short. We know that his word will never return to him void and there is something for you this morning. But as far as my personal situation is concerned, I guess I was prompted to preach this message at more or less the beginning of the new year uh, because there's been circumstances that have changed for me at work. Work for me has always been something for which to fund my ministries and to be honest, I've never been too fussed about it. I've always been blessed when I could drop everything on Friday afternoon and, and go off to Awana and deal with problem children like Paul and, and the rest of his crew and then do Sunday and then come back on Monday and there it will, all was for me again. But after 25 years in the same company, things changed. I felt a little bit less comfortable in what I was always doing and there was a spot in the office and some of my uh, forklift mates uh, came up to me and started my imagination racing and said, Oh, Gerv, I'm not making fun of them. This is the way they talk. You'd be so good in this position. You, you need to apply. So I applied and, of course, didn't get it. While I keep listening to these jokers, I have no idea because they're seldom right. But since then, though I didn't get the position, they tell me I interviewed well and there has been various other responsibilities that have been entrusted upon me and that's fine. I want to be seen as responsible. I, I want to take up that challenge. But then you realise that with those responsibilities, work seems to take, make more and more demands 
upon you in terms of who you are as a person, your strength and your mental reserve and whatever, and perhaps more significantly, your time. Work tends to do that. So I think it's appropriate as 11 months of the year are still to come upon us that we do a bit of a vision check. We check, if you like, our spiritual vision. And perhaps it's because I just got my licence renewed and I had to do the eye test and I guess I was a little bit sneaky. I was looking at that eye, that eye chart the moment I came in but they saw me coming, the rascals. They changed it at the last second, when I, but praise the Lord, I saw enough to be able to pass. But let's have a spiritual eye exam concerning, well, what are we seeking at work? What are the goals here? In our Bible reading in Matthew chapter 6, when the Lord talked about worry, as... He was talking about the things that they were concerned about. They weren't entirely bad things. Food and clothing, for example, are seen as essentials then. For is it not written, having food and clothing, let us therefore be content. These are essential things. Everybody needs these things and these are the things that the people of God were obviously very, very concerned and anxious about. And Jesus makes the point in verse 32 that in doing so they were indistinguishable from the Gentiles or in other words the unbelievers. Those that had no knowledge of God, those that had no personal relationship with God, well guess what? They were concerned with exactly the same Thing. Now, I'm a bit of a, an implant or an import, if you will. I spent the first 18 years of my life in Colcan, and uh, if you've never heard of the place, don't worry about it. Population 1,400, there's not much to tell there. I spent a few years in Canberra, and then I came here, and when I first came here, I was almost overwhelmed by the pace at which life moved. I'd never seen anything like it. How quickly things went. You know, I, I felt that I was swimming against the tide and I get what it's like to live here. And I get that it is tempting to do as the unbelievers do and be concerned about these things that are essential. 50 years ago, the average Aussie bloke was depicted as someone who basically swilled beer and basically lived on the couch, didn't move from there until absolutely necessary and was absolutely glued to the box and was chanting, Lee, 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 as he was watching all that exercise that he was uh, very much in need of himself. But that certainly has changed. If we look at the average non-believer here in Sydney, we can say that they work very, very hard. They're swimming frantically to survive in the same way that we are. So I can perhaps say to you that as we seek to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, 
in our workplace, something more than that is required. Of course it's good to work hard. Of course it's good to look after a family. I've never been brave enough to take on the responsibility that some of you have and I admire you for that. But surely something else is required. We are not meant to live as the Gentiles do, as the unbelievers do. Another distorted vision is the Laodicean. Those that make materialism basically the one aim and goal of life. I'm rich, uh, rich, increase of goods, have need of nothing, and you say that's completely wrong. But the chilling thing, of course, is that when we read that in Revelation chapter 3, verses 17, which is marked down for you there, God is not addressing the Gentiles or the non-believers here. Rather, he's addressing the church. And we'd like to think that we can look at that and say, well, that's for another age, that's for another church epoch. But we can't say that, can we? The overarching flavour of the church today is materialism. And though I'm not accusing anyone here that their long-term plans and their visions are completely self-centred, this is the environment in which all of us have to try and survive and even thrive spiritually. So we need to be aware Idols are not just something of yesteryear that were made out of wood and stone. An idol can be a house. An idol can be a car. An idol can be a round-the-world holiday, if that's what you're aiming for. If that's your vision when you close your eyes at night as far as what you're working towards is concerned. And once again, I would politely suggest that we need to do better than that as the children of God. The play actor. Now, we don't have to go too far. Our Bible reading was in Matthew chapter 6. We simply have to go to the first two verses. Take heed that you do not your arms before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine arms, thou do not sound as a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, which is rather a chilling remark by our Lord. There is no reward to come as far as the hypocrite is concerned, who do good things only in the sight of men. Now, I've talked about the hypocrite a fair bit because that word fascinates me because of my uh, background in drama back in my uni days. Hypocrite literally means play actor and it's referring to Greek theatre where masks were a big part of the performance. Now, Pastor Brendan has a great expression regarding sanctified uh, imagination. I love that expression. I've stolen it often. So yet, let's use our sanctified imagination. Imagine the great Greek actor of his time. And he's just looking at his mask and saying, who am I going to be today? Am I going to be the great hero 
or the completely moral destitute coward? Am I going to be a great emperor and a conqueror? Or am I going to be a slave? He had those choices. And the fact is the temptation is for all of us to come here in our Sunday best, not just in the way that we're attired, but the way that we behave. And once Sunday is finished, that mask goes back on its stand and a different mask is assumed for Monday. And the person that turns up to work on Monday morning may be physically the same, but in terms of behaviour, it's obvious that another mask has been donned, another persona has been assumed and once again, I believe our Lord deserves better from us than that, regardless of what the temptation there might be. The compromiser. Let's look very quickly at Psalm 1. We were talking about Psalm 2, so we can do Psalm 1 as well. And Psalm 1, of course, talks about the very gradual descent of a person into becoming a worldling. And we see that in verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. So the person that's descending is walking in the counsel of the ungodly, still perhaps making progress for God, but the counsel of the ungodly is there. Now, nor standeth in the way of sinners, so he's actually stopped moving spiritually and he's standing with these sinners. And he, and the final face is that he is now sitting in the seat of the scornful and for anyone else walking past, of course, they can't differentiate the Christian from the non-believer. But, of course, the antidote to all this, in case you're fearful, which is a good thing, by the way, is found in verse 2. And it's simple. Look to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Amen. Now, if you have that fear that that might be you because of the unsaved people at work, well, I think it's a very good fear to have because Paul had exactly the same fear. And you can find it there in 1 Corinthians 9.27 where he says, I bring myself under subjection. There was no gaps in Paul's devotional schedule because his fear was that there was every chance because of our flesh that still plagues us, every single one of us, it is possible that after he has preached to others, he himself might become a castaway. So if you have that fear, it's a very, very good fear to have. And I hope that you are someone who takes the name of Jesus with you to work, who takes the word of God with you to work, either physically or upon your hearts. But, you know, I believe that there's another distorted vision that we can have, and that is of the finger wagger. And what I I mean by that is that even though we have a testimony at work, we almost become like a moral policeman. 
We, can, we become the person that's always going, ah! And, okay, you might object to some of the stories and some of the language and that's all good, but the question is, are those people to whom you're seeking to witness comfortable with coming to you with a problem? Their marriage is, is busted up. Their kids just got arrested. Are you the sort of person that they're going to come to? Request prayer? Advice? It's very, very unlikely if you've just been playing work cop all this time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31 to 11, verse 1, Paul talks about pleasing all men in all things. And Paul is not a hypocrite because he goes on to say, not seeking his own profit, but he's seeking to win Jew and Gentile. It's an old saying that's almost a cliche, but it is a scientific fact that you, you do catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. You do potentially attract the loss to the Lord by being a loving friend than someone that's going like this all the time. And Paul put what he was saying here in 1 Corinthians 10 into practice in Acts chapter 17 verse 28 and perhaps we can look at that very quickly. Acts chapter 17 verse 28. Now the interesting thing and I do remember Pastor Christie preaching about the message that Paul gave at Mars Hill just after he came back from Athens. So I remember that, Pastor Christie. I found that quite impactful. But in the lead up to him preaching before all these Greeks, it says that Paul was cut to his soul by the idolatry that he saw in Athens. It physically affected him. And he was there by himself, his mates like Timothy, they weren't with him as per usual. He felt very, very lonely and he felt very, very distressed by the sin that he saw on every street corner. And yet when the opportunity came to preach, he did so, he took it. And I find verse 28 very interesting because as part of the message he says to the Greeks, in him that is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Paul knew about their culture. Paul knew about their poetry. He didn't look down on them to the extent where he didn't know where they were coming from. In Paul we see, if you like, the perfect example of hating the sin and loving the sinner. I trust that you're not a finger wagger. I could not but help in preparing this message of thinking that something that happened to me just last week where I was training up and I was looking over the shoulder of a fella that had, um, was known for his temper, shall we say, or had a bit of a, a short fuse and for whatever reason I was talking about my laptop or something that I saw online and he said well I bought a laptop once I was trying to learn stuff 
but it wasn't doing what I wanted to do and I got angry so I punched it and the screen went black. And of course there was the temptation for me to be a finger wagger which I felt that the Lord wasn't leading me. So I tried a different approach. I basically said to him, oh, I see your problem. You actually should have kicked it. And he looked at me kind of uh, very strangely and I said, haven't you ever heard of rebooting? <laughs> and okay, I made him smile and we're still mates. But I, I hope you see the point here. Hate the sin. And if you are dealing with someone and it does seem too heavy, go to your knees, spend time with your Christian friends, spend time with the word. But Paul sought to please all men in all things, not seeking his own profit that they might be saved. So these are some distorted visions, if you will. Now let's look at some corrective lenses or at least perhaps some questions that we can be asking ourselves even this morning as we seek to glorify the Lord in our workplace. How do I intend to impact my world? Even by coming here this morning, you might have gone past our mission statement. And part of our mission statement of this church is that we intend to impact the world through the transforming power of the gospel. And even though, yes, all I do is drive a forklift, I realise that God never makes mistakes, so I don't just see it as my work, I see it as my mission field. And as the, the new year is, is upon us, it's here, it's coming and it's rushing past already, we need to ask... How do we intend to impact the world in which you live? Nothing good happens without some effort. Sanctification, glorifying God in our lives is a co-labour between us and the Holy Spirit. And as far as a labourer is concerned, he's always on time, he's always got the right gear. When we see a lapse, it's never the Spirit's fault. And if we don't have a plan as far as 2024 is concerned, what exactly do you intend to build as far as the gospel is concerned? Matthew chapter 9, and we can turn there, and these are the famous words that the Lord spoke regarding the harvest. There are several accounts of this in the gospels. Now pick this one and you'll be able to see why. Matthew chapter 9 verse 36, but when he, that is Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion upon them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And these sort of people are everywhere and they're at your workplace and God has placed you there for that specific purpose, how do you intend to impact your world? Nothing good happens without some effort, without some planning. What's your plan? 
as far as your sphere of influence is concerned. What is my work routine like? Psalm 119, 105 and 106, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I'm sure that everyone agrees with me. There's no one that will stand up and give me an argument as far as the power of God's illuminating word is concerned. But the question is, is the word of God part of your work routine? I would never stand before you and say that I'm the most organised person, but at least some level of organisation needs to take place in my life or they won't let me through the door. I need my safety boots. I need my high-vis vest. I need that silly little card that dangles above my neck because that's the card that starts everything. I'm not going to be able to drive anything unless I've got my card with me. I, I do need specs for the high stuff. You try working from 10 metres, okay? I do wear specs just for work and I need these things. But I need the word of God as well. Every single person here would say, yes, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Yet it's staggering how many Christians don't make the word of God part of their work routine. I need thee every hour. Most precious Lord, how many times, if you're my age, how many times in your life do you think that you've sung that? But do you believe it? Meditation and prayer on the word of God needs to be very much part of our work routine. Otherwise, there's no wonder. There's no wonder we're not glorifying God the way we need to do in our workplace what does my testimony really say about me? You know, I'm not the guy that looks at all the social media, but every so often I come across a LinkedIn profile of a Christian. And yes, it tells me that this Christian would be an absolute boon and a benefit to any workplace in which they're working. It tells me that they're hardworking. It tells me that they're dedicated, but it tells me very little about their faith. And I can say this, it has been a personal blessing to me to see even the, the profiles of some people here online where they openly testify regarding their ministries, regarding their relationship with God. I'm so grateful that the Lord enabled me in the interview that I'm talking about to testify the fact that I was a born-again believer. But let's consider how you want to be regarded at work. You might be the best worker in your place of employ. Congratulations, that's great. But potentially, you'd have to agree that an unbeliever potentially could be the best worker at your place of employ. You could be punctual, you could be dedicated... But do they know? Do they know about your relationship with the Saviour? Have you succumbed to the pressure of this world? Have you seen some things about your life as an inconvenient truth as far as work is concerned? If I was to have one of your workmates here, what would they say about you? 
once again, I just praise the Lord. I look to the Lord above that there are people that come up to me on their vehicles and say, aren't you that Jesus bloke? Well, thank you, Lord, for that. But what does your testimony at work say about you? Am I considering the great workers of the word? Daniel in chapter 6 was a man that he was in a high position and then, of course, his position and everything was compromised when it actually became illegal to pray. And here, I've got good news in this country, we can pray as much as we like and we don't. When I was a kid, I read actually a graphic novel. That's a fancy way of saying comic book, okay? But a graphic novel telling the story of God's smuggler who was someone who actually smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. And God did a miracle. Sometimes he made no effort to hide these Bibles. He had them on the front seat of his VW and they were miraculously missed by the communist border guards. And you can imagine those believers that got to see the Bible for the first time. They'd heard of it. They realised its importance and now they had it. Can you imagine that mindset? Can you imagine the emotion coursing through the veins of these people? But we have the word in abundance. We have opportunities in abundance. We squander, we neglect, and we wonder why we have no testimony. Abide in him and he will abide in you. The three who were four. Perhaps you're wondering, well, what happens if push comes to shove? What happens if my employment is actually jeopardised by my faith? Well, we see the three. They were Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. I hesitate to call them that. That was their pagan names. wasn't really their real names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, which was worshipping foreign gods. He's Daniel to us. He's not Belteshazzar. But these three push came to shove for these men. And just turn with me, please, to Daniel chapter 3, because this truly is a blessing. But even as we turn there, I've got a question for you, and I know the answer already, but something for you to consider do you really think that there was only four Jews that were in Babylon at the time that all this was going on, the time it was made illegal to pray, the time when they were ordered to bow down to the world's idols and the world's agenda? Were there only four children of Israel in Babylon at this time? Well, of course there wasn't. Nebuchadnezzar came, he trashed the place, he took mass slaves. In other words, there were many of the ancient children of God who compromised. But these three were placed in a very tough position. But as they replied to the king, who was threatening their lives for their faith, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king, but if not. These three men were ready to face the consequences for their faith. 
And it's something for us to consider because whatever pressure is put on you at work, there's no fiery furnace. There's no idol, there's no trumpets. And yet the, the God that we serve now was able to preserve, protect, flourish and thrive his people who were obedient to him. And of course, the end result of this was that these three men were bound into the burning fiery furnace and then Nebuchadnezzar looked in and was astonished. And in verse 24, did, we not, did not we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, True, O king, he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Whatever your problems are at work, friends, please see them as an opportunity that the Son of God can be plainly seen in your testimony. There is no fiery furnace. There is no storm. There is no valley of the shadow that the Lord has not foreseen for you in his glory and will never tempt you above that which you are able. Glorify God even in persecution. The Apostle Paul, and of course I want to be respectful of your time, but in in Acts chapter 28, and we do need to turn there if that's okay, the Apostle Paul had just been thrown ashore from a storm that was so bad that for a while there, those people on board this ship didn't know whether it's night or day, didn't have a clue, couldn't see the sun, uh, the sun, couldn't see stars, couldn't be any, see anything. The sailors had to labour tirelessly, non-stop, for two weeks to get out of this storm. And in verse 44, it says that they came on ground uh, in Malta, uh, ancient Melita, modern-day Malta. They came on boards. Now, the I love to teach teenage Bible class. That was a highlight of my ministry. But I had to put up with the joke, oh, Mr. Dunn, do you know surfing's in the Bible, dude? It says in Acts 27, they came on the shore in boards. Yes, this, this is just part of the job description, unfortunately. But these are broken boards from this ship that was wrecked. But as Paul reached the shore, he was not a broken man. And even though perhaps we don't want to think of the great apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, the, arguably the greatest missionary who ever lived, we don't like to think of him as looking like a drowned rat, but it was inevitable. That's what he looked like. And yet the moment he hit the shore, we see him gathering sticks for a fire. But we also see him being bitten by a viper. And let me ask you something. Is there a time at work where you think, well, this is just the last straw? This is it? If anyone had a right to lose it or to storm up the steps to the office, it was Paul. And yet he shook the snake free, threw it into the fire, and not long after that, the chief of the island got sick, got a mystery illness that no one could cure 
and when they sought for some sort of solution, their minds immediately went back to the serpent guy who could get bitten by a serpent and yet knew no harm. Of course, at the time, Paul didn't realise how God was going to work things out, but brethren, he always works things out. And if you talk about all those people at work on your knees rather than to their face, the Lord will work it out once again for their benefit and his glory. The Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, when he preached to Cornelius, he presented the Lord Jesus as someone who went about doing good. No harm, just good. Is that your testimony? John chapter 12, verse 28, we see Jesus under the very shadow of the cross. If you look at the verse and you look at its context, the cross and what is about to happen as the Lord Jesus Christ suffers, bleds and dies for mankind that we might be saved, even in that context where he says in verse 23, the hour is come, he also cries out in verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. There came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That's something for us to remember. The Lord Jesus Christ has walked with us. He's glorified his name in us. He's protected us. Surely goodness and mercy has followed us all the days of our life. And perhaps... It's good right now to think of how greatly the Lord has blessed us. And if we truly comprehend that, why are we so concerned about tomorrow? Why is the light that we shine at work so dim? When the Father has glorified his name and will glorify it again through us, if only we trust if only we obey, if only we dedicate our work and our workplace and our, our work colleagues to the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory, of which he is entirely worthy. Amen. In a moment we will stand and sing. And these words are actually very confronting and very challenging. And I pray that you can sing them with gusto even this morning.